eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Radio.com Sports presents Big Time Baseball with MLB insider John Heyman and former Major Leaguer Tony Gwynn Jr. It is my very special, special privilege to bring in our next guest, Rob Manfred, the Commissioner of Baseball. This is the Big Time uh, Baseball podcast. It is big time. We've had Dusty Baker, Dave Roberts, uh, Scott Boris, uh, Brian Cashman, a lot of great guests, but now we have the commissioner in baseball, so he's in charge of this whole thing. And uh, Rob, welcome here. Um, I want to ask you right away: we're 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 to the bubble, we're to the playoffs. Uh, baseball, uh, for all of the doubts, has uh, done a good job to get to this point, uh, and uh, now we're heading to the playoffs and the bubble, and it looks good. Uh, so I want to ask you: Did you did you have your doubts, and did you have any? I mean, obviously, not everything has worked perfectly. Are there any regrets about the way things have gone? I can't. I can't imagine there are too many because uh, we we all really need to celebrate the fact that we've gotten to this point. Yes, John, I, I'm really pleased that we've gotten to this point. Um, you know, hats off to the players, um, our on-field personnel, uh, the people at the clubs, and a lot of my staff members who have you know, work really hard, um, undertaking changes that, you know, are difficult changes, not only in terms of the way the game's played, um, but interactions in and around the field and changes in people's personal lives. Um, so I, I do feel fortunate that we've got this far. Um, I have to say, I do feel like we have challenges still in front of us. We, we you know, it's really important for the game. Um, that that we get through this postseason um, uninterrupted and safe. Rob, talk about the players and how they adjusted after those few after those those outbreaks early. Uh, there seemed to be a, a a different thought process after. Just talk about how the players adjusted after those. Well, you know, I think that all of us, not just the players, um, at the outset was were thinking that you know, testing was really the key. And, um, you know, testing is a very important part of the overall program. But I think after the first couple of um, outbreaks, everyone, us, the players, everyone really focused in on the fact that, that the masks, the social distancing, 
what you were doing away from the ballpark um, really, really mattered in terms of preventing outbreaks. And that focus, hats off, particularly to the players, that focus helped us manage this uh, much more effectively the, 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 the rest of the way through the season. You know, I, I thought that we really couldn't do the bubble. First of all, the players, uh, at, le- at least in the regular season, the players were just not going to go for it. So you, you have to have the players on board. Uh, it's a democratic sport. You can't you can't have the game, games without the players. So, I, you know, you obviously need big stadiums. There are big traveling parties. It just isn't the same game as the NBA. And the NBA was fortunate to be three quarters of the way through their season when they were interrupted by the pandemic. You haven't even started the season. But I, I do want to ask you why – why you did switch now to do the bubble. It seems like teams have really, we've had that one false positive in the last month. Other than that, nothing. Uh, Why did you switch to the bubble now? And uh, what are your thoughts about the fans uh, in the stands? I mean, I'm assuming California is out for the, for the fans. I I get where you pick them. You can't have any rainouts, but um, Texas is, is still, we're going to see some fans in the postseason. Well, John, let me try to take those one at a time. Um, with respect to the, the, the bubble, I would say two things to you. Um, number one, we have stayed in constant contact with our medical experts um, in terms of monitoring the constantly changing situation with respect to the virus. Uh, there, I'm sure you're familiar with this. A lot of people think, you know, as the weather gets cooler here, that um, we could be looking at uh, more serious problems than we have in the last few weeks. We thought it was really important to be in front of that curve, number one. Number two, we have a lot less flexibility in the postseason than we do in the regular season. Um, you watched us um, as the season inv- evolved. Uh, we, if we had a positive, we shut things down, we rescheduled aggressively, but the shutdowns were, you know, often five to, to 10 days. And you just can't do that in the, um, in the postseason. And then the last thing kind of relates to where you started the logistics of a bubble in the postseason, particularly if you wait until the division series is a far more workable than a regular season bubble where you're trying to play 15 games a day. I mean, it starts with facilities, uh, but it, you know, it, it goes on to numbers of people and um, the duration that you can ask people to be isolated. So um, it was a combination of, of those three factors on the fan issue. Um, it, we will not have fans in California. It's clear that, um, the local public health officials not on board with that. And we, we completely respect um, that decision. Um, there is more flexibility in Texas. We are planning on trying to have fans for the LCS in the World Series. Um, obviously going to be limited, you know, 20 to 25 percent of capacity. People are going to be wearing masks. Um, but we, we, we hope we will be able to get some fans back in the ballpark. Rob, I'm curious to, to hear your answer on this, but what would have warranted shutting down the season? Was there anything in place where X amount of teams have an outbreak and you have to shut things down? Did that ever conversation ever come up? We never had um, a number of teams in mind 
um, with respect to, you know, firm, hard and fast rule. If we have X teams, we're, we're going to shut it down. Um, We, we felt that um, we would try to continue play as long as, and this is the phrase I used then, and I still think it's the right phrase, we could have a credible season. And and, and what does that mean? That we had enough players um, available on teams that, that they were competitive, they were major league quality teams, and that we were going to be able to complete 60 games or something close to it. Those were really the two issues um, as opposed to a certain number of positives that we were focused on. And, you know, look, we sometimes you, you make decisions that um, you think are right when you make them and they turn out to be even more important. And I, I think the regionalization of play was one of those decisions. Um, we decided to regionalize play really to, to minimize the travel of the teams. But an added benefit of it that was crucial for us as the season went on was we had a lot of rescheduling flexibility because we were playing the same teams more frequently than in an, in an ordinary season. And that was really important. Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we're all thrilled that we're to the playoffs at this point. This is fantastic. And, of course, you know, baseball fans uh, can be critical. They certainly are into it. They're interested, and they look at everything. And one thing that uh, I know of, uh, some fans are not that thrilled about is that there are 16 teams in the playoffs and that two of the teams are below 500. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the, the – your thoughts on that are now, obviously, if they get through this gauntlet, uh, they'll be above 500 when they win the World Series. I mean, it's a long shot that they do that, but right. they will be if they get through it. But what, what is your what are your thoughts on the expanded playoffs? I know that there was a uh, it was a plan in, in place or in mind to go to 14 teams, which I think would. Uh, I don't think it would eliminate uh, teams that are 500 or below, but certainly would uh, reduce the possibility that we're going to have uh, teams with mediocre records uh, in, in the playoffs. What, what are your feelings about the fact we have 16 now and that we may have 14 going forward? Well, I, I think it's important to begin from the proposition that the 16-team format was an accommodation to the abbreviated season that we knew we were playing in 2020. I mean, if you look at just over the weekend, right, with only 60 games, you don't have the same sort of shakeout um, in, in, in terms of who the really good teams are. And we thought um, absent uh, a, a full schedule, it was important this year to give more teams access to the playoffs. Having said that, um, I do think that the, we have – had the most selective playoff format of any major professional sport. I think that's an important thing to our sport. I think it will continue to, to bear on our thinking. Um, having said that, I like the idea of a little broader format, um, expanded playoffs, whether it's 12 or 14, um, you know, that remains to be seen. We're going to have to have conversations with the Players Association. I'm in favor of expanded playoffs, but um, I do think 16 is a number that's larger than what we're going to be looking at on a go-forward basis if we get there on expanded playoffs. Rob, I, I want to ask you about some of the rules that were implemented in 2020. Obviously, some of them were uh, as a as a kind of a recourse to the shortened season. 
but there's been a, I think there's been a, some positive, some positivity that has come out of some of these. What are you, what are you hearing in terms of feedback on some of the rules that were implemented this year? DH three three pitcher minimum or three hitter minimum things of that nature. Yeah, well, the the, the three batter minimum um, is different than the other rules you alluded to. We were going to do the three batter minimum no matter what. We had adopted that rule change. I think the the rule change was less controversial um, than um, some people uh, would have led you to believe. I think in general, in general. Um, there is a dynamic that we have observed with our fans um, because our fans and the media love the game so much, their natural reaction to change is th- they're against it. Um, but I think this year was an example with the seven inning double headers, the tiebreaker rule. We did those things not because we were looking to change the games. We did that because we had to do it to get through the season. One of the interesting things that occurred is people were more positive about those changes when they saw them in action. And I I just think it's an important um, lesson to learn when we collectively, uh, those of us in the commissioner's office, the clubs, our fans, the media, um, it's easy to be opposed to something in the abstract. You don't know what it's going to look like. You, you don't have any experience with it. So the natural reaction is to say, no, we shouldn't do that. But sometimes, sometimes if you go ahead and make the change, people see the change and they realize, hey, you know, that's not so bad. <laughs> Let me stay on that. Uh, I have to say that I fit that last one. I love the runner at second base. I thought that was fantastic. I thought that would be a disaster, and it's been excellent. And uh, you know you're going to get split decisions on all of these. So either way, you're going to you're going to be up for criticism because we we had a poll here at MLB Network and it was basically split on all of these things. But uh, I wanted to ask you going forward, what do you think the chances are we'd see that runner at second base? The other ones, I'm not that. In, in favor of myself, but they're just one person. Take it for what it's worth. It's a 59-year-old male, probably not your, maybe your audience, but maybe not your target audience. Um, the seven-inning game for the doubleheader, I, I would not, I would be opposed to that, but I, I could live with it. Uh, same with the DH. I mean, uh, you know, I, I see the, the positives uh, going forward. Um, you know, it gives more guys a chance to keep playing. It evens things out. Both leagues are the same, but I like the strategy of the National League. So uh, going forward, how do you look at the seven-inning doubleheaders, the DH, and the runner at second base? Well, if I had to handicap them, um, I think I would say that the uh, extra inning rule probably has the, the, the best chance of surviving. I think that um, most people um, came to realize that the rule adds a layer of strategy um, and sort of a, a, a focus at the end of the game that could be helpful to us over the long haul. Um, so, so I give that one the best chance. Um, I think the worst chance is probably seven inning game. Um, I, I, I hope, I hope we're all back in a world where, you know, nine inning games make sense for us uh, again, and that, that we don't have to make that kind of adjustment. The DH is a tougher issue. You know, I mean, there's just, if you, I, and I think my reluctance is this, John, you know, if we eliminate the DH in the national league, 
it is a brand of baseball becomes extinct, right? Because nobody plays without a DH other than the National League. So um, I, that does concern me. Uh, I want to switch uh, to the minor league side. Obviously, a lot of changes uh, coming. How, how will minor league baseball look for years to come moving forward? Look, I think that um, the minor league system um, for most people will look very similar to how it looks today. I think there'll be, you know, 120 or so affiliated franchise that are uh, franchises that are exactly the same um, as today. And I think in the other 40 or so communities, you will have premier amateur and or college leagues that will keep baseball alive in those communities. I think that um, that format will make the minor leagues better from a development perspective. Um, it'll provide better working conditions uh, for players who have a realistic opportunity to play in the major leagues. I think the, the shift to the kind of elite amateur or collegiate leagues um, will promote a better relationship with college baseball. Um, and I, I, I think it will reduce the number of players that we're signing that don't really have a realistic um, possibility of making it to the major leagues. Um, it'll allow them to, to, to focus on other opportunities in terms of their professional careers. And um, I, I, I think overall it'll be good for baseball over the long haul. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in my two cents on the minor leagues. My one concern is, uh, you know, I, my first jo job in my career, such as it is, was in Moline, Illinois. And we had the Quad City Cubs and then the Quad City Angels there. I was only there for two years. But uh, they certainly seemed to breed Cubs fans around there when you had the Quad City Cubs and maybe even baseball fans in general to have minor leagues. So that would be my one concern there. If you could talk on that more. And also um, – the umps this year maybe it's because i'm watching every game i got three tv sets working all the time i can't go to the game so i see them all uh the umping umpiring particularly at home didn't seem to be as good as it was in the past uh the the giant season ended with a low pitch that was called a strike i know that's only one pitch anyone could miss it, it you know obviously you play 60 games you can't claim that one pitch change your whole season but um you know, I'm wondering about the robo-umps going forward. I never was in favor of this, but um, I don't know. I know we had some umps opt out because of certainly there may be medical histories, and, and I don't blame anybody who opts out. Uh, maybe that affected things. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you – did you notice that as well? And, and are robo-umps viable in the near term? All right. Well, let me let me take all three of those questions. You know, good thing you didn't go to law school. What's <laughs> my choice, by the way? There would be lots of objections to your compound questions, but I'm trying to follow along here, so I'm yeah, doing the best I can. For yeah. You. Let, let me just clear that up right away. That wasn't my choice on law school. The, the law schools of America made that choice. <laughs> I hear you. Look, on the minor leagues, obviously the minor leagues play an important role in the marketing of our games. And one of the reasons that we're so intent on keeping um, a form of baseball that's associated with the major leagues viable in all those markets is because we want to continue to build that fandom. I mean, the idea that somehow we're abandoning markets, you know, I, I, I hate to use a phrase, um, but, you know, it, it, that's fake news. 
that was put out by the minor leagues in an effort to leverage us. And, and it's just simply untrue. Um, as a matter of fact, you've seen in recent days, um, we've made partnerships with independent leagues, trying to bring more leagues under our umbrella to ho- uh, uh, help grow the game in those communities, number one. Um, number two, the umpiring, um, look, we did have 17 major league umpires um, who, who didn't work this year because of COVID-related concerns. Um, our umpires at the big leagues are, are, are the best in the world, and when you lose 17 of them, you, you would expect you could have um, – some quality impact. I got the data today on the strike zone. Um, There's like a 0.05% difference in terms of the way all of the umpires graded out on the strike zone this year as opposed to last year. Um, Not a very significant difference. I think the call-up umpires that we had in the big leagues did a phenomenal job under really difficult circumstances. Um, so, but let me go to the third one. Look, you've, you've heard me, um, on the idea of technology. I think that we owe it to our fans to use technology in in order to get every single call, right. If it's possible. And I do think it's possible that, um, the, the technology is good enough. And I think that the technology could give us a more accurate strike zone. Um, if that's the way we decide to go. Rob, let me ask you this, because uh, obviously the Toronto Blue Jays in particular um, had a little bit of different situation. They they had to make their home in Buffalo this year. What are the conversations like with Toronto, with the Toronto Blue Jays in Canada to make sure the Jays will be able to have somewhat of a normal season next year? Because there's no guarantee that we're going to be completely out of this COVID thing by then. Well, First of all, I think uh, the Blue Jays, um, Mark Shapiro, um, Marnie Starkman, who, who was responsible for a lot of the build out in Buffalo on a tremendously short string, um, got the, the facility in Buffalo, not only um, to the point that everybody was comfortable playing major league games there, but you know, I went up to Buffalo. I saw it. I mean, if you were a member of the Blue Jays, you knew you were home. I mean, it was a temporary home, but you felt like you were home. And, mm-hmm. and that's a tremendous accomplishment for the club. Um, that we, we view that as a one-year um, fix to address the, the, the differential, the significant differential that, it, that existed between the COVID situation in Canada and the COVID situation in the United States. We hope the two situations are close enough that we can convince the Canadian government um, that it's important uh, to have the Blue Jays playing in Toronto. I know there's strong sentiment supporting that idea, and I'm optimistic we'll be back in Toronto next year. Rob, I'm going to ask one more question before we let you go, and that would be about the Mets ownership uh, change. My, my assumption with that is that if they've gone this far with it, they feel that Steve Cohn will be approved. I know there are no guarantees. Um, so generally, how do you feel about this whole thing? Uh, is my... Uh, feeling correct, do you think, or 
I don't know if you, what you can say on that now. And also the Wilpons, they're, they're taking a lot of hits. Obviously, the Mets haven't won as much as they would have liked to. Uh, you know, maybe I'm in the minority. I, I happen to like them uh, just a little bit on their their stewardship of the team. And, and I understand that the Madoff situation affected them and uh, they didn't certainly spend like the Yankees. It's a tough competition there. Uh, with it, with a team that uh, generally has the highest revenue and uh, frequently has the highest payroll as well. Um, so where do the Mets? Where does the Mets ownership situation stand? I'm hearing that the vote can come a little bit sooner, even than the November meeting. Well, let me start with um, Fred Wilpon. I mean, if Fred Wilpon um, ha- has been a great owner of the Mets. Um, for, for a substantial period of time, um, he's really well respected uh, among the other owners. And whatever the outcome, the result, nobody wanted to win more than Fred Wilpon. Um, you know, he, he desperately um, wanted to deliver a winner on a consistent basis to Mets fans. Um, not always possible. Some years you win, some years you lose. Um, with respect to the, the, the change, um, you know, all I'm going to say on that one, John, is we're going to try to process this as quickly as possible. It's up to the owners ultimately as to whether uh, Mr. Cohen will, will be approved. Um, but I, I think um, given the time of year, we, we would like to move this along as quickly as possible so that the Mets have certainty as they go into the offseason and, you know, you have it's absolutely clear who's making the decisions about how the roster is going to be put together, what the budget is and what the 2021 version of the New York Mets is going to look like. Well, Rob, I want to really thank you for uh, for joining Tony and me on the Big Time Baseball podcast. It has been a real pleasure. Commissioner of Baseball, Rob Manfred. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.